0: hey everyone this is jason and welcome to the bold moves only podcast for today's episode we have my friend mavia who i met while studying at the graduate institute in geneva who has used a much more creative approach to her academic career than most She's an impact filmmaker, and among other things, we will mostly be discussing two films she has made, including Elle Invisibles," invisible, which she did for her master's thesis. Let's get into it. Hi, Mavio. Welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So, just so everyone is aware... I am looking at you face to face. This is the first time that I've done this. So uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. It's <laughs> not over Zoom. Um, so before we get into anything about your two films, I kind of want to talk about you and your journey. You've been pretty busy over the past couple of years making two documentaries. Prior to making The Drop, have you had any experience with filmmaking?
1: When I finished high school, I decided to take some time to, to travel and this first kind of big travel that I decided to do with my boyfriend at the time, we actually took a VW camper van and we decided to travel around Europe all the way to the Middle East. And very quickly I realized that I didn't want to just be traveling for that time. So we decided to do a project and this happened to be a film project. We started by trying to get a little bit of fundings here and there, it didn't really work out. And then we did crowdfunding which I'm using again now in my projects. And that actually worked out and we managed to get a little bit of money. And we did this project where we interviewed like kids uh, around the different countries that we traveled through. And we were asking them about like their dreams and different like life aspirations and stuff. And so it was a bit of like a road movie kind of thing. And it was very amateur, like it was our first, like my first little documentary of the type. But it was really interesting to kind of test out these different ways of, of doing film and then we actually showed it in a cinema when we came back and it was just a really great way of sharing the experiences that we were going like that we lived for these 10 months that we spent in this camper van and yeah after that i just realized that film was really something i wanted to keep like having in my life as a way of connecting different topics that i was interested in or different things that i wanted to to explore
0: and how useful do you think filmmaking is as a vessel for relaying the information that you want to share, especially coming from someone that is currently in such an academic setting.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a big question and it's a difficult one because the circle of the arts and the circle of academia really don't mix much like other circles, I suppose, but especially these two, I feel there's a huge gap and there's so much potential between both. And I just think there's that capacity of like really bridging that gap. I don't think we should understand filmmaking or visuality in in a similar way than writing is. We should really understand it as a completely different and new way of creating knowledge and really like having it as an extra to something like complementary to, to what academia can create as well. And I really think it is a tool that has the capacity of like reaching out to a bigger audience and visuality in itself really has a strong, powerful potential to touch people in different ways and, I think, to trigger, like, transformative change in different ways. So I think there's, yeah, there's a huge potential between these two.
0: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and you talked about, you know, your your travels and you're currently at the Graduate Institute with me. The way I like to describe it when people ask me what my experience is like, I like to tell them about this one class uh, where, you know, it, it was elites and in inequality where the professor was Brazilian, the person to my left was from Greece, the person to her left was from the UK, the person to my right was from Switzerland, the person behind me was from the DRC, to her left from Jamaica. And, you know, on any given night, I could have dinner with someone from Egypt, Turkey. I also, over the past few years, have been traveling a bit. And I'm wondering, how has this experience constantly being exposed to people from all over the world shaped your outlook? on the world?
1: I think what is interesting is that so I'm I am from Switzerland I grew up here until I was 19 and then for about six years I was traveling and studying abroad so I was always the international one elsewhere for a long time and then coming back here I'm suddenly the local and like you say uh, I mean there's very different parts of Geneva there's the Geneva that me and my friends are from which is the very local part and then there's this international sphere which again really doesn't mix with the rest very easily and it is hugely amazing to be surrounded by all these people and so i don't know it is it's just so fruitful to always have those experiences those different exchanges between people and stuff but i think what's interesting for me is that very quickly i understood that my research and the things like the topics that i was interested about I kind of wanted to then have them in my own context. So that's basically also why I decided to do the film I'm working on right now. Uh, I was thinking of going to Lebanon and doing the, maybe we'll talk about it more (laughs) later, but this topic about uh, undocumented women working in domestic economy. I was first interested in the Middle Eastern context. And then with everything that happened with COVID as well, like it suddenly just made me realize that this is also happening here. So I think it's that thing of being constantly around people who come from these different places, but then also rethinking my legitimacy in that, being like, well, I'm actually from here. This is what I know. This is where, you know, I, I can evolve in a way that actually makes sense because this is my own environment. And I think for me, that really kind of reinscribed that quite, quite strongly. Yeah,
0: mm. yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. And so, elle, les invisibles and another project you did for your capstone where you made a film capstone essentially is a major project that we do after our first year Um, you know normally these assignments are long written exercises or reports Um, you obviously decided to not do that and kind of take the more unconditional unconventional path I'm wondering what that process was like
1: yeah I mean um it was a, a difficult one and a challenging one for sure because, I mean, especially at the Institute, it is it is an institute of research in international studies and it really, like, you just don't get any direct support um, for doing anything that's outside of that, which is normal because, you know, it's not in their competency really and it's not in, in within the department. So that's one thing, but it was also trying to, well, first finding actually a supervisor that understood, uh, especially for my thesis, uh, who understood where I was going with this and who actually acknowledged the the potential of, of this project. That was quite a challenge. But then once I found this person, um, this professor, then it kind of, everything kind of made sense. And the department was also kind of okay to, to kind of open up this new path for, for research. And I think it is... It is challenging because you're you're completely on your own, for sure. It's always that thing where it's always trying to balance out the academia part, what we were saying before, right? It always looks like arts is not as legitimate or it's not, you know, it's more subjective. Like there's always that part of saying, you know, there's gonna be editing, there's gonna be it's not as research based. And I think that really we need to change that that vision of of, of different, you know, means of artistic means because there's a need to communicate to wider audience and to have more people interested in the topics if we want change because people that will read your written thesis are already people interested in the topic, which is great. But it's also like, if we want a wider kind of trigger for change, I think there's a need for, yeah, for these connections to form. And so it was uh, definitely complicated, but I think what's really interesting to point out is that for both the capstone and now the thesis, which I'm finishing now, but I've had extremely positive feedback. Amazing. Like uh, for the capstone, we actually won the prize for the the best capstone of the, um, the track um, and we're still going to be working on the exhibition. So it was a um, contemporary dance video talking about the different... Um, unconscious material triggers for violence especially in terms of torture and how you could work with materiality um, to try and stop uh, this falling into violence and so we did that through both video and contemporary dance so mixing two artistic means to talk about that and actually everyone just really it really worked like it really worked with the research we did it was really complementary and really brought something Extra, and I'm hoping that what I'm doing for my thesis now is kind of similar, where it really brings a very personal account. It's giving voice to people that usually don't have that space to talk, and I don't think writing would have been as strong. So, yeah, so it's a challenge, but I think it actually proves itself pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it before. You know, I'm so I'm finishing my first year, and it's soon time for me to do my own thesis and it's really kind of terrible to think about doing something for a whole year and you know ultimately it just ends up on your bookcase right i'm really trying to find my own way to move beyond the room where they determine oh you, you did well you passed boom bing it's over and you know when i talk to professors about doing something different their eyes light up like yes do it. So you know, I think there is really uh, an interest in moving in this direction. But now let's talk more specifically about the films. So let's start with the drop. When a drop of water mirrors the fall of social justice. Can you explain what you mean exactly by the title?
1: So it all started when I was in my undergrad. I was studying in Toronto and um, thanks to the first uh, little film that I just explained at the beginning with the Rhone movie, uh, one of my professors saw it and liked the way it was done, although it was quite amateur, and asked me to follow him on the field um, in Flint, Michigan, where they were having the water lead poisoning crisis there and asked me to do some kind of little video or short documentary about it. So we went there for a couple of days, and I think it was one of the most shocking experiences I've had. Because for me, coming from Europe as well, the U.S. had that image of you know, it's a world-leading country and all the wealth. And I mean, obviously, there were I knew there were some inequalities, but I had no clue it could go to that point. And I think again, as a European, to understand those social inequalities um, with all the intersections of structural and systemic racism that is, you know, still currently very much shaping the story of the US. Um, It just, it was a real, it was quite mind blowing to be honest. And so it started there in Flint and we didn't, so I didn't manage to get really interviews. It was more just images of the city with the crisis and stuff because everyone was, it was very difficult to talk to people at that point. But anyway, after that, I just realized how something as easy as access to water especially when you think about the U.S., you wouldn't think that water would be an issue, right? You, you would think that everyone would have at least access to safe water. And that wasn't the case. So I decided to follow that topic. So in terms of not water just as water, if it's safe or not, but more what are the reasons, the social reasons, why you would have access to those, this water or not. And so in Flint, it was very very clear that it was the African American population communities that were left there in Flint for all the other reasons, that structure, that story, and that were paying the price through this water-led crisis. So then I followed that topic uh, in Canada and was even more shocked to see that actually First Nations in most reserves don't have the same rights to water than um, white Canadians or like Canadians that are off reserves, um, because it's just... I mean, again, it's just politics, right? Just the way the water is paid for and dealt with and safeguard is not the same. So I went to talk to one of um, the water operators that uh, was fighting to get safe water on his reserve. And I mean, Canada is, I think, the biggest um, uh, drinking water reserve in the world, basically. And just to imagine that it is happening in a country like that is just outrageous. So I think it was it was a lot of like little yeah little triggers and realizations like that that made me just realize that water is not just about the water, but it just shows it's an indicator of social justice in a certain way. So then it followed down to um, because I was yeah, I was doing a this kind of trip and so I went down to Central America. and there the question is kind of different because water is actually not potable for anyone. So it's more of who? is in a social position to actually access safe water instead of it being for everyone except some people. <laughs> it's kind of, sort of shifting the, the problematic the other way around. And there I looked at um, a scientist, a Guatemalan scientist who invented a clay pot that was able to completely filter the water in a very natural way and was distributing that through a social enterprise um, to different communities for them to access clean water. And then the last part is more in terms of social mobilization against the water privatization of an um, American-US company that wanted to privatize Bolivia's water. And that was the first water war, uh, how they call it, in the year 2000s. So I kind of relate those topics. So the drop is the drop of water, but it's also the drop in the sense of falling of just this social justice that can be visible through the access to safe water.
0: Hmm. And and kind of as you're saying, you know, the film and its issues with water resonate with so many other problems in the world. It's greed, it's those responsible for our health cutting corners, Um, it's incompetence. Uh, This is my third podcast episode where we talk about water and the contamination of water. And I feel like the response is always so minimal uh, compared to the severity of the problem. And um, whenever there seems to be some sort of resolution, it's always too little, too late. So why don't we care enough about something that is one of, if not, the most essential thing in life? Uh, or is it just that we don't care enough about those who are the most affected?
1: Yeah, for me, it's definitely the, the second <laughs> option that you just stated. I mean, it's that's the, I mean, it's the same thing everywhere, right? Like unless it actually impacts you and when i say you it's you the person who has the power to make the change which is the people who have the power to just do differently and the money to you know in terms of water when it happened in flint it was i mean basically most of the white people when they when everyone when all the the car companies like ford and everything dislocated out of flint michigan just like detroit it left the poorer population, which were for most the African American and Hispanic populations, that couldn't move out of the city. And then once the water crisis started, they couldn't afford to buy different, like bottled water, for instance. So it's always that thing where, whenever it's happening to someone else than you, like it's okay, just not to to take any decision for change, right? And then I think you know, I think for one moment actually with COVID we kind of hoped that for once it was going to impact everyone and that that was actually going to bring change and then you just see that again the same people are making money out of it (laughs) so it's kind of this endless loop of just saying you know when you look at nestle and they're privatizing fucking everything and it's just it's unbelievable and it just keeps on going and it's happening in california it's happening everywhere they've and i mean yeah it's just about getting the right people involved with the power but these people i'm not sure they want to Let go of their privileges, so I don't know.
0: Yeah. I actually just saw the Nestle headquarters for the first time. It's kind of unrelated, (laughs) but I was like, Whoa. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're all here. That's there. It's like
1: Monsanto as well is really close to Yeah, I don't know. For me it was just like
0: there they are. Yeah. Like there's the people that I've been talking about right there. Exactly. But you know, so so now let's move on to L's invisible. So you you kinda talk about why you did it in Geneva. But what was that initial interest for working with or doing a film about undocumented migrant women?
1: So it was more about the question of the domestic care economy, uh, which I was very interested in. For me, it's like it's very central to the, the feminist question, right? The, the, the feminist, I mean, most feminist studies also kind of concentrate around that to just understand the wider global dynamics of, of women's position. Within the economy, Um, this constant struggle between the public and the private sphere and the devaluation of work um, that is meant to be private and that, you know, now has been globalized in such ways that actually women's emancipation in the global north has meant that the global south now has to come and kind of fill up the gaps uh, because inequalities haven't changed. I mean, it, it just like has kind of entrenched those inequalities in different ways and i mean this is part of a much wider global context with you know other dynamics like you know capitalism and everything else that comes into play but um i just thought it was a very important topic to talk about because it's that thing where we feel you know talking for all women is just impossible like it's just this different intersectional experience of being a woman in this world that is so so different and so it started from that and then the most known stories were in the middle east there's just a lot of domestic workers there it's basically modern slavery where these women from different places in the world but mostly like southeast asia the philippines uh come and work for these employers families and for most it's they have to give up on their own family to take care of a new family and there's a whole also aspect of um the value that we put in the essentialized like motherhood of a woman. Like she, because she's a woman, she knows how to care and she will know how to look after my kids and my house. And then what happens is that it really blurs that distinction between what is work and what is her life. Because she, sometimes it's, you have two different uh, options. It's either cama um, afuera or cama adentro, which means like the, your room is inside or outside of the employer's house. But when it's gamma adentro, when you live with the employer, there's no more distinction and you're supposed to be giving just as much work as if it was your family. And also, I mean, emotionally, you can imagine the amount of difficulties that it is for these women to work super hard to make their families live but then not see their children for years but have to care for other people's children. So anyway, there were all these dynamics that I found really interesting and really important to talk about because it's very easy just not to talk about it. And these people, I mean, they're just in such a a system of inequalities that just overlap in such ways that it's just, it's very, very difficult for them to get out of it. I mean, for some of them, you know, the employers take away their passports, everything. It's super easy for them to threaten them with, you know, expulsion or like bring them to the police if they do anything. They don't know anyone. They don't know their rights. They don't know where to go if they would have to leave the place. So it's that, just like really, really crazy intersections of so many vulnerabilities that kind of come together. And um, so, yeah, so these stories are more known in the Middle East, I think, for people who are maybe interested in the topic anyway. But what was crazy is that then I just realized that Geneva had just as much of these stories happening. And what is also a bit ironic is that Geneva has this huge international sphere that works for human rights, that works for international work labor rights and then what happens they actually bring their own domestic workers with them from their own countries for some and just keep them there undocumented again when we say undocumented I think it's really important to just distinguish the fact that it's they do not not have documents like they have documents it's just that they're not valid and not like recognized for work permits in Switzerland or other countries so it's more irregular migrants than undocumented But yeah, so this is a really strong thing that's happening. Well, actually, that the associations I've started talking about it in Geneva, way more in Geneva than elsewhere in Switzerland. It doesn't mean that it's not happening elsewhere in Switzerland. It's just that the politics don't want to engage with it elsewhere.
0: Um, And I actually do know that there have been a number of cases with diplomats and human trafficking with their domestic workers. And it is interesting that you chose to do this in Switzerland. You know, I've already talked about Switzerland a bit and Swiss politics in a previous episode with Laura Zimmerman from Operation Libro. But I bet most people don't know how conservative Switzerland is and how anti-immigrant Switzerland actually is. So maybe can you paint a picture about the sentiment regarding migrants in Switzerland?
1: I think that's a really hard question because um... If you look at the Swiss politics, we have a kind of direct democracy, which means that we vote on almost everything. Uh, like every three months, we we get to vote on different um, initiatives. And I think Switzerland as a whole is very complex because we have the German-speaking part, the French part, and the Italian part. And we all have a very different culture. And I'm, I'm putting, you know, like... Culture is a difficult word to, course, to use, yeah. <laughs> but it is true that we we have different politics. Every canton has a different politic on everything, on education, on that, where we really have a lot of um, leeway on how to, to deal internally about things, um, which then shapes, you know, different ideas of the other and the migrant. Um, Switzerland is a tiny country. I mean, we're only about 8 million, I think, people right now. Um, And then so you can imagine that our cities are very small, which means that diversity isn't a huge thing. I mean, Geneva is the most diverse city and it's not extremely diverse. I mean, it's diverse in a certain international way, but it's not diverse in terms of like different diasporas or, you know, communities. Like they're very spread out and like very little. So... Yes, we are a very conservative country for most, because most of our cantons are just, it's the countryside. Uh, For most people, they've never engaged with anyone else than a Swiss person or an Italian person or a German person. So it's very easy to follow those politics that show a very scary and threatening image of what an immigrant could look like, right? Even if, like, it makes no sense once you actually think it through. But that's been the case for a long time. And that's the problem with it. I mean, problem, it's the complexity of this direct democracy is that anyone can start an initiative and then if you get enough signatures, you get to vote on it. And we've had outrageous things pass recently, like the, the Burka initiative. So you're not allowed to, to wear the Burka anymore. We're sending back um, uh, uh, criminal foreigners, that passed as well, because it's all part of that discourse of you know protecting Switzerland and Switzerland is an island. It's an island in the middle of Europe. We're not part of Europe. We're, you know, we're completely unique within this, like, huge European puzzle. And it's very important for a lot of people to keep that identity in some ways. And, but it doesn't make sense because, you know, all Swiss people have blood from elsewhere. Like, it was different. It's just, it's also that thing where the migrant changes, right? After decades, like, the image of the migrant and the threatening migrant is always changing, and for a while, it was the Italians and the Spanish who came to work, like, in construction work or the Portuguese. And that was seen as the people that were going to take our jobs and things. And now it's shifting to more of this, like, I don't know, like, with the threat of, like, terrorism or, like, Islam or whatever. So it's just those different moments of, like, understanding what migration is. But, yeah, it's a it's a complex question, so But for sure, you can just tell it from, from the voting. Like, it's pretty conservative. Yeah, pretty outrageous, some of the politics and the advertisement and things that is allowed to do actually (laughs) it's crazy Mm.
0: and and i know you couldn't put everything in this film but is there anything that you left out that you think is important to share
1: um i mean it's funny that you say that because at the end of my project the important last step was to show the film to the women and for them to give me a feedback of what they thought of it and how I told the story and if that was okay and if they wanted anything to change. And all of them said, oh, it was really good, but you didn't say everything. <laughs> and I was like, well, actually, I couldn't have a 45-hour <laughs> movie. <laughs> um, so it was really lovely to see that they wanted to share the whole story. But, I mean, there are four women. And, and then, I mean, we did a lot of interviews. So it like it was just impossible to put everything, as you said, Um, I think it was it was super hard a super hard choice but any any kind of qualitative kind of research like that you're gonna have to make choices at some point right and that will mean cut things somewhere and I mean I actually think I managed to put all the main like steps that were important to understand their overall stories I had to cut out so many little other stories that made their experience their experience for sure. And it was really hard. Like it took me so much time to figure out what was important or not. But I think overall, it kind of draws the picture pretty well, I think enough to understand what, you know, their story was. I think what's also interesting is that they, because after the, the couple of months that we've been spending together, seeing each other for interviews, they also really opened up on more like personal levels. But they would wait for me to switch off the camera and then tell me about the stories. And actually there, there were so many stories I would have loved to have on camera. But also that was part of the process and the project is that I was giving them the option of depicting their stories the way they wanted to. It wasn't about me deciding what to put inside or not. So it was actually really completely okay and great that I would get the extra information, but not on
0: camera. And can you talk more about that experience showing the film to these women. I mean, can you explain what what it was like for them to see their story, which, like the title of the movie says, is often invisible?
1: Yeah, it was um, it was super touching. Actually, it was really really beautiful. We just met all of us in, in my kitchen, and I showed them the, showed them the movie. And the interesting thing is that they had never met before between themselves, so it was a great moment of like. Yeah, watching this movie together and I mean at the end you actually see it on the last scenes of the movie but they they were for most, I mean crying, like they were very emotional about it and they hugged each other and then we discussed for a bit and they said they really felt more united. Um, they asked a lot of questions among themselves as well, being like wow you went through this, you went through that, that's crazy. And they were saying how they felt less alone in their stories. And I think that is a huge thing, right, depending on, on your situation. But, like, it's very easy to be isolated. And that's how the system works as well, right? You're you're quite isolated. I mean, some people do have communities and, you know, they they are able to, to share. But I think it was really interesting there to have this common kind of ground and seeing that everyone had their own difficulties in different ways. But, yeah, a lot of empathy and a lot of, like sisterhood in a way for me it was really important that this project made sense to them like I didn't want it to be just this research thing where I take my information and then I get my grade and then I'm fine and I'm off I really wanted it to be like useful I'm saying useful I know it won't change their situation but that it would have a meaning to them and one of the women that I've been following for the yeah from the longest i think she said like oh i always said one day i want my story to be on television so i knew that for her i was like part of this kind of little dream to you know to appear that way so that was really wonderful and yeah they were really happy in the end
0: and you never know what kind of an impact it can yeah. actually make it's true and uh, you know so in both of these films you're talking to people who have been fighting to make positive change for themselves and for others i'm, w- I'm wondering if there's any important takeaways that you have from interacting with these people,
1: I suppose it's like you with this pod- podcast, right? Like you get to meet people that are just really strong, really powerful people that want to make change, as you said, and like it's it's really inspiring to see how it can work and the different way they make it work. Like I don't know for for Elles Invisibles, like I talked a lot to like associations and like the unions. And just the way they—I mean—it's a real personal commitment to make it work. And they were—they've been working for years for this um, Operation Papyrus, so this like regularization operation in Geneva to happen for undocumented people. It was just like it—it it really did cost them a lot on a personal level. It was just such a commitment to—to to make a difference in other people's lives that they would not even know that well or you know just because they knew that was the right thing to do so it was yeah it's really inspiring when you feel like the people you're interacting with know why they're there and there's a meaning to why they're doing what they're doing you know and there's this other woman that I interviewed for this movie as well she's more of an activist and it was so interesting to like have her vision as well like more globally on her other types of struggle for women equality and you know, just relating all that, it just gives you a lot of strength, um, interacting with these people and feeling that you're creating this kind of connection for a couple of hours. It was, yeah, really powerful.
0: And last question. What would you say to someone who wants to make a positive impact but doesn't know where to start?
1: Just to like believe in yourself that there's other ways than the ways that are that are said to, to do things, right? Like there's always other options and like being creative about it and like trying out stuff. And like, if you fail, it doesn't matter. Like it's it's okay, you can just like figure out why and do it differently next time. I think there's just so much potential in like being creative, like bringing people together, getting different skills. And like that's what I also really learned doing all these films. I started really alone on the first one, very small team on the second. And on this third one, I have like a bit of a bigger team. And it's changed my life in terms of the quality, but also the experience, like of bringing all these skills together. It was amazing. We all learned so much and it really allowed us to all do our work really well instead of trying to like juggle everything. Discovering that with other people and like bringing different skills and yeah, having that kind of inner trust of being, you know, trying things out. I think there's so much potential in so many different ways of doing things and so many different mediums that we can mix together. and. Yeah, there's not one way of doing things. I think it's just important to remember that.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining the Bold Moves Only podcast.
1: Thank you. (laughs)
0: Okay, thank you for listening. I highly encourage you to go check out the drop and Elle les invisible if you're able to. I imagine this is really just the beginning for Mavia, and I look forward to seeing everything she puts out in the future. Have a great day. Let's be bold.